Well, we have the wonderful privilege of having another speaker from um, a different session this morning, Virginia. So let's make her feel welcome. You volunteer for prayer, please? Lord, I just thank you so much for this um, beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, um, for the book of Haggai and what you've already been teaching us. Lord, I thank you for the first time that we get to have Virginia in this session. Um, God, I pray over her right now and that um, everything that you have um, had her prepare, Lord, that um, that it would just flow out of her just so effortlessly, (laughs) unlike that word uh, for me, (laughs) Um, and that it would just fall on us and our hearts, Lord, today, and we would be able to just receive everything that she has to to say to us today, Lord. I pray grace over her as she teaches, and I bless her in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Well, it is super good to be with you guys, teaching here in your session for the first time. Um, I'm very excited. Um, So, the book of Haggai this morning. Uh, Before we get into it, I just wanted to hear from you guys. You know, what are your thoughts on this book? Um, Anything that stuck out to you? Any questions that you have? I just would like to hear what you guys are thinking about the book today. There you go. Very good book. I like it. um, It's very good that God is encouraging homeboys to rebuild it. Because those homeboys are lazy. But God, He shows how God wants to dwell with them. So it's very good. I like those homeboys. They're encouraging to me too. Don't be lazy. Something works. Yeah. Anyone else? First thoughts on the book of Haggai. Cool, please. Does our sin have an effect on the weather? Uh, or natural disasters? <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? You guys have all read the book, right? Yes. Okay. Um, maybe that I don't remember the whole like picture of the book here, but I've just like been wondering a bit why it was so important to rebuild the temple mm-hmm. if yeah. it's like not gonna be the ultimate thing. You know? Yeah. yeah. Good question. I really liked how it kinda the, the message is mostly uh displayed in the Bible, which like seek first the kingdom, like mm-hmm. always just like yeah, follow God first and everything else will fall into play. I think that that like part postures what God was like wanting through the book of Haggai. Yeah, just like build my temple first and then like you'll prosper in everything else. And it talks about how like they like planted much but like harvested little. And so I, I like that as well. Just how if they like seek first God and like just are faithful in little things, like they will prosper a lot. Kind of so. I really like that part of Haggai. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you guys for sharing your thoughts. Um, 
I was reading through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and I think that's exactly what Jesus had in mind, specifically these people when he said that, because um, he said you won't want for clothing or food, and if you seek first the kingdom of God. So when you go through Matthew, you can make that comparison. All right. So, yes. Haggai was an important prophet with a powerful message to the post-exilic Jews. And um, in this short book of two chapters, he addresses two of the biggest promises that God had made to his people. Promises about the temple and promises about, um, well, yes, the Davidic covenant. Covenant. As Yusuke mentioned, it is a book that is written to encourage a discouraged people. Through the reassurance that God had for, had need, <laughs> speaking, through the reassurance that God had forgotten neither his people nor his promises to them. Haggai's message called for the people to trust God regardless of the situation and be obedient to the steps that he had placed in front of them. To trust in his character more than in their disappointments. It addressed that mindset um, and called for ultimately a response of obedience to their faithful and ever-present God. And so when I started prepping this book, um, I had forgotten everything about it. Didn't remember a thing, um, and I did my first read, and I was like, this is it? Um, and so my first thought when I came to prep this was a little bit of disappointment, but God radically changed my perspective on this book, and honestly, it has become one of my favorites. And so my encouragement to you guys is, if this book seems you know, not as magnificent as the others, There's so much beauty and so much hope and so much encouragement in here. And so my challenge to you guys is find that when it doesn't seem just on, if it doesn't seem just on the surface. Um, Yeah. God um, has been really intentional with the books that he has had me teach um, this year in SBS. And when I taught the book of Job, the heartbeat of that book was what I needed to hear during those three months, so sitting in the book of Job. And then when I taught Hosea, I needed to hear about God's radical love for his faithless people. And now, over the past two months as I've been prepping the book of Haggai, I realize I am Haggai's audience. Without a shadow of a doubt, I am. And... uh, I've never identified with a generation in the Bible more than these people, and it's a little sad to say. Um, But yeah, this book has been really powerful for me, and the way that God encourages these people is exactly how he's been needing to encourage me in the moment. Um, Yeah. So, let's talk BRI, background information. All right. So authorship, there, um, admittedly, there wasn't a whole lot that I found during my study. Um, The traditional view is that it was written by the prophet Haggai. And the reason why people believe believe this is basing it off of the prophetic word formula that we see in 1-1, 2-1, 2-10, 
and 2.20. And so because of this prophetic word formula, it's just assumed that Haggai wrote down his own prophecies. One difficulty to this traditional view is that it is written um, all in third person, as if someone um, else is describing, describing Haggai's sermons uh, from their point of view. Another, uh, another difficulty with the traditional view of authorship is something called redaction criticism. Redaction criticism, sometimes referred to as editorial criticism, is the study of how the books we have in our Bible um, came to be. It's an attempt to trace the editorial process behind the Bible. And some scholars, um, usually more liberal-leaning scholars, tend to see uh, the book of Haggai as heavily edited um, over the years uh, after Haggai spoke. So a process that started with Haggai's original words, and then uh, someone later wrote them down, and then someone later organized them uh, with a framework. So that is, um, and the word in italics there is the German name for this, which has no relevance. I just thought it looked ridiculous. Um, Redaction Geschichte. Who knows? But I thought that was funny. Um, Yeah. So other than Haggai, there's nobody else who's really in the running for authorship. It's either Haggai or an unknown author or compilers far down the line. I believe that Haggai did write down his art, um, his oracles. Um, yeah. But for you guys, if you find something else, totally fine. All you need to do for your homework is Pick a position on authorship and defend it to the best of your ability. So, who is our guy Haggai? Well, his name means festal, and it's very fitting for a prophet whose who's calling from God was a challenge for the people to reinstate proper worship of Yahweh in Israel. We know what his name means, but other than that, we don't have any you know, biographical information other than seeing when Ezra talks about his ministry in um, Ezra 5.1 and Ezra 6.14. So other than that, um, I found a few interesting tidbits about our guy, and um, it's all extra biblical, it's like rabbinical, you know, tradition and just legends and myths, but I thought it was interesting, and if you're ever doing Bible trivia, and he's a topic, you guys will be, you guys will be prepared. So, one, um, one tradition is that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi helped found the great synagogue, um, which was an organization that scholars believe played an important role in the preservation of, um, in the post-exilic community by preserving scripture and passing down Jewish traditions. It's also believed um, that when these three prophets died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel, which I thought was very fascinating. Again, this is not from the Bible, so just not from the Bible, but interesting is what they thought. Um, And then the last thing is that Haggai and Zechariah's names are above um, Psalm 138, 
and Psalms 145 to 148 in the Septuagint. Um, and this, is, this suggests that they were responsible for the translation of these psalms from the Hebrew into the Greek. Um, and it's, it's very interesting. I, I was reading those psalms, and there are a few phrases that I'm like, whoa, that is so similar to the book of Haggai. Um, so I think it's really cool to read them um, together. So, when was this spoken? Um, Haggai is pretty unique and helpful to us in the way that he dates uh, his prophecies with such uh, specificity. I think that's a word. Um, He introduces each new oracle with the year, the month, and the day that it was given. Some scholars see um, Haggai as being very influenced by Ezekiel, Because Ezekiel also dated his prophecies, some of his prophecies, and like Haggai, talked um, even more so about the restoration of the temple. And because of Haggai's precision, we can date the spoken oracles to the reign of King Darius I of Persia, um, also called that name in parentheses, his, H-Y, that one, um, And he reigned from 521 to 486 BC. And even better yet, we can date it to a four-month period in 520 BC. And so you have the dates for the specific oracles there. The first one comes on August 29th of 520 BC. The second one comes on October 17th. And the final two come on December 18th. And so they used a different calendar. It was like a lunar calendar, and so that's why the months don't align with the ones that we have today. So part of the reason that could be for um, why Haggai was so meticulous is that when um, the chronological precision was kind of like a guarantee, So that when people did see these things fulfilled, that they could look back on Haggai's prophecy and see God's faithfulness um, to his covenant promises, giving them the assurance and hope that Yahweh will not and cannot forget a single promise that he's made. Date written. So there are two perspectives on when the book was written, and they tie into the position you take on authorship of Haggai. So for those who believe that Haggai was heavily redacted or heavily edited, um, see that process as taking up to 100 years after originally spoken. Some scholars believe that Haggai was edited or put together in combination with chapters 1 through 8 of Zechariah, or with Malachi, or with the 12 minor prophets as a whole. Um, However, there are several factors that indicate um, that it it would have been written closer to when it was spoken. Um, So comparing, and yeah, so comparing the way that the dates in Haggai are written to both biblical and extra biblical material shows a similarity um, across the board with earlier um, dating and writing practices. 
as opposed to later practices through oral, through more oral tradition. Um, and then the second piece is that um, so one of the reasons why um, scholars believe in this you know framework patchwork thing of the Bible is because they see a lot of the framework as holding an underlying theological belief, like the Deuteronomist, you know, we understand that, right? Um, And so the thing is with Haggai, um, the date formulas and what they say is the framework of this book, you know, doesn't reveal any sort of theological bias or agenda in any way. And third is that in the Persian period, um, it was common to, you know, com- to write and compile the um, oracles, and so it just makes it unlikely that Haggai's oracles would have been um, less likely that Haggai's oracles would have been preserved through oral tradition, but not dated or written down for a long time. And so, all this to say is that it is unlikely that Haggai went through such a long and complicated process of editing as some scholars believe. The second dating theory is for those who hold to Haggai's authorship. And so these people believe it was written sometime between Haggai's charge to rebuild the temple in 520 BC and the completion of the temple in 516 BC. There are a few pieces of evidence for this view. For one, the temple's completion is unmentioned. As well as, um, so there were two kings of Persia named Darius, and there's no attempt made to distinguish the first from the second. Um, And then third is the oracle about Zerubbabel is given without um, any sort of ending or termination. And so this suggests that at the time when it was written, he was still holding office. And the fourth um, piece of evidence for this is that the oracles, um, some of them have an eschatological feel and imagery. And this is in contrast to later Persian period literature, such as the books of Chronicles and Ezra Nehemiah, books that don't have as much eschatological interest. And so these four pieces of evidence point in favor of the book being written between Haggai's charge to build in 520 and um, 516 when the last brick of the temple was laid. I don't know if they used bricks, actually. I have no idea what they built the temple out of. I'm just talking nonsense. Okay. Who was the book spoken to? So the oracles are addressed very specifically, not only in terms of date, but in terms of who they are for. To Zerubbabel the governor, to Joshua the high priest, the people of Yahweh, as well as priests. And so as you go through on your BRI read, you can find the verse references for those specific audiences. Um, Yes. And put that there. Um, And so, because the book could have been written before the temple was laid, the OA and the OR can be considered pretty much the same people. Um, The first group of returnees from the Babylonian exile. Okay. Any questions? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. 
So, um, for when, so the reason, a reason why he could have dated it with such specificity is that the, um, it's kind of like a guarantee, like a time stamp. So that when the people saw that these things fulfilled, such as, you know, um, the second oracle with the latter glory will be greater than the former glory, or with Zerubbabel and the signet ring and overthrowing nations and kingdoms, and um, they would be able to see God's faithfulness and see that God had promises, that God had said it a long time ago, and seen his faithfulness. Um, yeah. Any questions before we go on to um, politics and mindset and stuff? Nope. Okay, great. Do you guys ask a lot of questions in class? No. Okay, okay. All right. All right. So... Haggai's sermons are rooted in a specific historical context, the early years of the Persian Empire. And so because this book is preached in front of that backdrop, it's important to take even a brief look at the politics of this time. And so we've already talked a lot about it in the school, um, with the many books that we've done in this period, and so I'm not going to repeat everything, just give us a little bit of a refresher. Um, So, as we know, the Babylonians had taken the nation of Judah into exile, and then the Babylonian Empire fell in 539 BC to the Persians, who became the reigning world power up until 330 BC. And so, um, a year after the takeover by the Persians, um, Cyrus the Great gave a decree in 538 BC. And we have this recorded in the Cyrus Cylinder. I believe it's in the British History Museum, and you can actually go look at it if you want to. Um, The Cambridge School, I believe, goes there on a field trip during, like, Joshua or something. Um, Something like that. I think it's so cool. Um, Yeah, and so the cylinder boasts of Cyrus's mighty deeds, how he allowed exiled people to return home, and he helped to reestablish their religious cults. And so the Hebrew people are not singled out specifically. Um, This was just Cyrus's policy. And so we have the biblical account of this in 2 Chronicles 36, 22-23, Ezra 1, 1 1-4, and Ezra 6, 3-5. It's pretty cool. He didn't think he was doing anything special, but Yahweh was using him to fulfill his plans and purposes, which is super awesome. Yeah. So the two important kings um, for us is Cyrus, who let them return, and Darius I, who's, um, under whose reign this message came. Okay, so now let's take a look at the people. So we've already done Ezra Nehemiah, we've already done Zechariah, so you guys should have um, a fairly good grasp of this already, but it um, doesn't hurt to hear it again. So all of the verse references here are from the book of Ezra. Um, Yeah. So after Cyrus gave the decree that the exiles could return, 
God stirred up the spirit of his people with a desire to go home. Before leaving, they were given gold and silver, which is reminiscent of the time that they came out of Egypt, and the Egyptians gave them gold and silver on their way out as well. A total of about 50,000 people returned, and they began to settle back into the land. After seven months of getting settled, the people gathered together in Jerusalem, and Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor rebuilt the altar on its foundation so that they could sacrifice. Um, so that they could sacrifice. So they were diligent with the sacrifices and keeping various festivals, and people were even giving free will offerings. But at this point, there was no foundation for the temple yet. And then in the second year after the return, the people began to start working on the foundation, and it was laid pretty soon after they began. And when it was finished, there was a celebration accompanied by loud shouts and joyous praise. However, life for these returnees was not all good. In fact, it was far from a cakewalk. One of the reasons they set up the altar in the first place was because they were afraid of the surrounding people, not just out of a love for, um, out of the need to do what Yahweh had commanded them, viewing the altar like a hedge of protection between them and their enemies. And at that celebration, while some people shouted for joy, many of the older priests, Levites, and heads of the families were weeping loudly. These were people who had seen Solomon's temple, and just by looking at the foundation, they knew it wouldn't even come close to the glory that it once had been. And so shortly after this, the Jewish community began experiencing opposition um, from the people of the land. They became discouraged, they were afraid to build, and all work on the temple just stopped until the second year of King Darius I's reign. The temple project had been abandoned. The reality of life in a ruined city, surrounded by hostile foreigners and plagued by drought and crop failure, was in a stark contrast to Yahweh's earlier promises of a glorious new temple and a great nation ruled by a good Davidic king. So, these are the people. Now, what were they like? What were they thinking? Well, the people we're concerned with today were the faithful remnant. They were the ones who had left their lives in Babylon to make the trek and return to the land God had given to their ancestors. These 50,000 were only 2% of all the Jews who had been taken into exile, a teeny tiny small number. In this group, yes, there were some who had seen uh, the temple and maybe even the fall of, ba- uh, <laughs> fall of Babylon, fall of Jerusalem happen in 586, but most of them would have been born in Babylon, would have been raised there. Most would have never seen the temple or the promised land, and everything they knew about their identity as the people of Yahweh and about Yahweh at all came from the stories they have been told. Perhaps they heard stories about the beauty of Solomon's temple from their mom as she cooked dinner over an open fire in the suburbs of Babylon. (laughs) 
And they would soak in every word as she described all the gold and the carvings of the fruit and the flowers, the way even the tiniest details were echoes of Eden, where God once dwelled with man. Or maybe as they walked to the neighborhood market, Grandma reminisced about one of her first childhood memories, the great Passover under good King Josiah, and the way people filled the streets and there was joy and laughter all around in celebration of their God. And it might have been that on occasion, even Grandpa would remind them about the great prophets of old, the messengers sent from Yahweh himself, who promised a glorious restoration for the faithful remnant, for the ones who stayed true to him. And so you can imagine that it was with great anticipation and expectancy that these kids, now adults with families of their own, perhaps even grandchildren of their own, felt as the Lord stirred up their spirits in Babylon. The yes in their hearts to go back was only magnified by the way they grew up on the stories of the grandeur and the glory of what Jerusalem was. As they finished packing up their belongings, their neighbors handed them gold and silver to help rebuild the temple. And as they made the four-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, Perhaps they kept their spirits lifted by retelling the stories that they were told as children, each one grander than the next. Mile after mile, the stories began to slowly die down, partly because the journey was exhausting, and also because they knew they were getting close and there was nothing in front of them to see except for the horizon line. There were no buildings, no walls, and a sense of dread slowly began to creep into their hearts. Shouldn't we be there by now? Why are there no buildings? There's literally nothing left here. They make it back and they finally arrive at Jerusalem. Well, what was left of it? They returned to rubble and ruin and not the restoration that God had promised would occur one day many decades and even centuries before. The faithful remnant arrives at the wasteland of their new home, and reality sets in as they begin settling down. Surely this wasteland cannot be the plans that God has for us. What about his plans for our good, plans to give us a future and a hope? What about his promises? These were people going through an identity crisis. Not only would they have been more culturally Babylonian than they were Israelite, but nearly everything that had defined Israel as the people of God had been stripped away. They had no king, they were ruled by the Persians. They didn't have a temple, and so they couldn't worship their God the way he had laid out for them in the covenant. These people, through whom God had promised uh, to Abraham that they would bless all nations of the earth, was small and weak not a great nation. And so getting over their initial shock at the state of their homeland, it takes a while for them to begin any type of work. The altar is built seven months after they returned the foundation, two years after that. The scene as we described in chapter three of people shouting for joy and yet crying at the same time makes me cry every single time that I read it. You can see, you can hear, you can feel the situation that Ezra describes. 
And after this, as they do begin to work on the temple, they face opposition. And for almost 20 years, they didn't do any work to build the temple. They had become discouraged with the situation. Oppression from the surrounding people, poor agricultural conditions, as well as the lack of freedom, convinced the people that the time had not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, as we see them say in Haggai 1 verse 2. Perhaps at first, they were just thinking, it it just isn't the right time to build the temple at the moment. God doesn't seem to be blessing it. And so it would just be a wiser decision to wait until the time seems right and doors open up. Makes sense, right? The doors seemed as though they kept slamming shut in their faces, and so naturally this was a sign from God. And then years drifted by, and the time to rebuild the temple never came. Instead, they began begilding their own houses and cities back up, which was not a bad thing in and of itself, but it wasn't the most important thing for them to be doing. They were discouraged because what they were seeing didn't appear to align with the way they believed God's promises would come to pass. This discouragement led to a pause in their obedience, and it ended up being a complete abandonment of what he had called them to do. The people became comfortable with their lives and passive towards God. Their hearts towards God became lukewarm, even though originally they had returned with their spirits stirred. Some questions and thoughts that they could have been asking and thinking are, you know, who are we? We grew up in Babylon, but our parents told us that this land is our true home. This land is our heritage from God. Well, what a heritage we return to. What does it even mean for us to be the people of God here in the promised land? Are the promises he gave to our ancestors still for us today? Is he faithful? Will he ever fulfill these promises? What about that temple Ezekiel described? This foundation is pathetic to what it used to be. What about the Messianic King? Where is he? Will he ever come to deliver us? Can we trust God to fulfill his promises when reality seems so far from that now? Where is he? He doesn't look like he's here. He doesn't feel like he's here. Just take a look at the situation. Oppression, poor crops, a drought. Has he abandoned us? Why should we even build his temple if he just seems so distant? It's wiser to just build our houses and towns right now, and maybe we'll come back to the temple later when things aren't as difficult. And so it's at this critical point that our boy Haggai steps onto the scene. And in Ezra 4.24 and 5.1, it reads such. At that time, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem stopped and was discontinued until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who is over them. It's at this point that God raises up Zechariah, who we looked at last week, and Haggai. And he uses them to encourage a discouraged and distrustful people to be obedient to God. As I was writing up um, 
these BRI notes and just reflecting on the audience, I realized that just the historical background could be a sermon. And so, everyone, make sure you don't skimp out on that part of your homework because honestly, you could be missing a breakthrough that God wants to you. I was severely convicted through the historical section. Um, it's, it's not just another step, y'all. It is crucial and it changes things. The historical method changes hearts. So please press in. The invitation is all yours. And so Haggai's audience, discouraged, disappointed. They were discouraged because of their circumstances and disappointed because God's promises didn't seem to be coming to fruition. And eventually, they began to base their beliefs about God off of their experiences and their feelings. God has left us. God is unfaithful to us. God will not fulfill his promises to us. Their subjective experience of life became what they believed to be true about God, and those faulty beliefs severely affected their behavior. Their distrust and doubt in God eventually turned into disobedience. And so God assures them and says, I haven't left you. I am with you. My spirit abides among you. I am here. And it can be so easy To be like, oh, those silly Israelites, what were they thinking? But we aren't that different. I know I am not that different. I can't blame them because it's just so easy to do the same thing. When life is disappointing and not what I wanted or desperately hoped for, I have a tendency to feel as though God is no longer with me, as though he has forgotten me. When we don't see his promises coming to pass... We feel like he hasn't just forgotten the promises. We feel like he's forgotten us. And so we must be sure that our subjective experience of life does not define our beliefs about God. When we get encountered by the Father heart of God or by the sheer magnitude of his grace during time of worship, awesome, praise the Lord. That cements truth about him into our hearts that we know in our minds. And yet, the flip side of that, when we experience struggle and heartbreak, doubts may creep into our minds about the goodness of his character, influencing what we believe about him, and that can be so dangerous. The depth of our knowledge about God's character must be rooted and grounded in something vastly deeper than our present physical circumstances. So that's the mindset. Um, Any questions? No. Okay. So the structure of the book. Um, Yeah, we're super close to jumping into the text, but we will do that um, after the break. Um, And so John Kessler is an influential scholar on the book of Haggai. And he sees the structure as separated by four distinct sermons following an A, B, A, B pattern. The A sections in 111 and 2, 10 to 19 have rebukes against the people interspersed with hope for the future. While the B sections in 2, 1 to 9 and 2, 20 to 23 focus more on encouragement and promise. 
And then there's a tiny piece of narrative that tie um, between the first A and B sections. So I liked this quote. Um, I think it shows the progression of the book. Um, in the course of the book, we move from we move from failure to blessing, from humiliation to exaltation, and from alienation and rejection to acceptance and restoration. And that is John Kessler. He's cool. Um, so, he also sees the sermons loosely structured around four different elements. First, there's an introductory formula, um, and then there is dramatic conflict. Third, a call to obedience and faith. And fourth, a declaration of promise. If you need that later, I will come back to it. You can ask me. And so, Andrew Hill is another um, commentator on the book of Haggai, and I love this quote. The book of Haggai is a literary hybrid that combines elements of historiography, date formulas and historical reports, with oracular speech, exhortation, admonition, and prediction, yielding a type of prophetic narrative with a plot line that progresses from a beginning the temple in ruins towards an end, a rebuilt second temple in Jerusalem. The brief account is complete with themes, the restoration of Judah, character development as seen in the response of the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the people in obeying the prophets called to work, and dramatic movement, eschatological implications with cosmic impact. I love quotes. Brilliant minds have studied the Bible for so long. It is amazing to get to read them. Um, And it looks like it is 10 o'clock. So we will be taking our 15-minute break and then jumping into the text.